when you can see yourself walking up towards the clouds and you're in like this fog and then by the end of the day the clouds are under you it was it was it was something to feel and see i'm jason mark the editor of sierra magazine and this is the overstory the sierra club's new podcast where we hear from changemakers storytellers people who help us see the world in a different light and from a new angle. Training for climbing Kilimanjaro is a whole different animal. This episode, we'll talk to Ray Smith, a member of the first all-African-American expedition to summit Mount Kilimanjaro. We are doing things in the outdoors, and we can bring back that experience to our communities. And we take a more modest, but no less significant trip to upstate New York to hike with single mom veterans who are learning how to work through their PTSD by finding a new community and a new connection to the outdoors. You don't have to explain. You don't have to be apologetic for anything. You can just drop tears and nobody's like, oh my God, but you're a soldier. You're not supposed to be sensitive. And we meet Yellowstone's wild woman. One of my mottos is follow your endorphins. Biologist and adventurer Meredith Taylor. And my endorphins are alive and well in the wilderness, trust me. (laughs) This is the overstory. We're going to start out this episode in New York's Harriman State Park. Last summer, Sierra Club's Military Outdoors program hosted a weekend camping trip there for New York-based military veterans who are also single moms. About 700,000 women have served in the armed forces since 9-11, and about one out of seven of all of them are likely to be single with kids It's a relatively small but growing segment of the veteran population, and it's one that's vastly underserved. Producer Claire Ty took to the woods to find out what a little hiking, a little conversation, and some camping under the stars can do for five veteran moms and their families. A small group of women and their kids are gathering around a campsite in a New York state park. Between their laughs and easy conversation, it's hard to believe that just 24 hours ago, they were strangers. It's a Saturday morning in June, and the group is hanging out after a night of camping. For many of them, it's their first night of camping ever. All of the women on the Sierra Club's military outdoors trip are veterans and single moms. This weekend is a special chance for them to get outside with other families like theirs. For most of the women on the trip, it's not often they spend time with other veterans and their kids. My mindset when I was getting out, which I find is similar amongst other veterans, too, is just, like, I want to get as far as possible from that experience. That's Howley, one of the moms on the trip. She's 28 and lives in Brooklyn. After she left the Navy, Howley wasn't exactly looking to be around other vets. But then you do stuff like this, and you meet other veterans, and you're like, you feel better. Women only make up 9% of the military. Because they're a minority, they don't always get their needs met whether that's support for being a mom or navigating their mental health care. Some VA hospitals don't even have women's clinics, let alone nuanced treatment for women vets struggling with things like PTSD, depression, and the day-to-day of being a single mom. I think hiking with other veterans who are also mothers kind of give you a sense of affinity with a group of people that you kind of been detached from coming out. For moms like Howley, finding other veterans is key to getting the emotional support they need. And reconnecting and finding out that we have some of the same experiences. We've been through some of the same traumatic instances and just a lot of the same issues that um, 
we don't really focus on as veterans come to light when we're in groups such as these. Howley wanted to share that reconnection with her friend Moet, who she knows from the Navy. We had the campfire last night, but this today like just solidified all the friendships and the bonds. The two reconnected after losing touch in the years since their service. Howley gave Moet a phone call and asked her to come on the camping trip. And I didn't, I kind of shied away from the whole Navy veteran being around all those military people. When I got out, I was like, I'm going to be normal. This, I don't want to, um, you know, I just don't want to be around that. I want to find out who I am outside of the military. Moet's 27 and a single mom, too. After getting out of the military a few years ago, Moet felt like she didn't need other vets in her life. And now I'm starting to realize that I actually do, I need them. I need them to understand me or to just have somebody to talk to. Because I hate having to explain everything that happened in the military to somebody else. Moet joined the Navy right after high school when she was 17. She served for five years until she was 22. In that time, she had her daughter, Harlem, who is on the trip with her. What's your name? Harlem. There you go. The Sierra Club's approach to this weekend is called Adventure Therapy. It has its roots in the original Outward Bound program, but the Sierra Club gives it a special twist. Campers can bring their families. Everyone bonds by being outside together, whether they're figuring out how to set up a tent, make a s'more, or tackle a hike, which is what the group is doing next. If anybody wants to stop for any reason at any time, just say, let's stop, take a break, sit down, water. At the trailhead, one of the trip leaders orients the group. It's not a race. We're not here to like, that kind of hiking, you know, just, it's like a stroll. Nice nature walk. That sound the trip leader just made, she means don't be military about it. Having kids around helps not take the hike too seriously. We're going to get high to the top. I'm I'm so happy. This is so fun. Where do you think moss comes from? Uh, rocks. With their kids running ahead on the trail, the moms get a chance to talk about their shared experiences. It's hard enough being a mom, being single, and being a veteran. She's come to the VA to teach us more this mindfulness. Three of the vets, including Moet, say managing their mental health is another added stressor and something that stops them from getting outdoors. When Moet left the Navy, the VA prescribed trazodone for depression, anxiety, and adjustment disorder. This weekend, she can open up to the other moms about it. It's a camaraderie. You don't have to explain. You don't have to be apologetic for anything. You can just drop tears and nobody's like, oh my God, but you're a soldier. You're not supposed to be sensitive. I am tired. I am Wonder Woman. I am mom. I am veteran. I am sister. I am everything but something to myself. So... When you have a trip like this, it's like, you do get to see your kids, but then you also get to realize, I'm not crazy. There's other moms who do this. We're all making it through and we all suffer sometimes. After the hike, the moms feel a little closer with their kids and one another. They're ready to take on the challenge of building another campfire or anything else that comes their way. Come on, Ryan, let's go. You got it, mom's right there, come on. For The Overstory, I'm Claire Ty. That report was based on a feature story written by Katie O'Reilly, Sierra Magazine's adventure and lifestyle editor. To read the piece and to check out some beautiful photos from the weekend by Robin Toomey, head to our website, sierramagazine.org.
Next up, we've got some tips from our advice columnist, Mr. Green. In this episode, Michael calls in from Santa Clara, California, with a question about how to maintain his solar panels. I've never bothered using software to track my solar panel performance. How much better do solar panels perform if they're washed every year? Well, that sort of depends on on how much slope they have on them. I would say that in general, you don't need to clean them unless they're very flat or close to flat, 5%. Uh, if If there's a reasonable slope, it probably isn't necessary to wash them at all. But when you get down around 5% slope, you should probably wash them two or three times a year because dust does sit on them. I guess even some rain will uh, will rinse them off. Yes, that's the idea, that a little rain will just drain any dirt and gunk off of them. But there are a lot of local conditions and local exceptions. kind of depends also on what kind of neighborhood you live in, whether it's dusty and dirty or whether it's clean and pristine. So where do you live? I'm in Santa Clara, California. Santa Clara, okay. It would pay to go up and check them out two or three times a year, even if they're steeper than 5%. Uh, if you're not scared to get up there on the roof, that is. You know, some of us are and some of us aren't. Yeah, I'll probably do it just because I can. Maybe when I get older, I won't. <laughs> but um, I do get a little experience because I volunteer with SunWork, which is a not-for-profit. Oh, what do they do? They install solar panels at reduced cost. Oh, And their specialty is people who could not otherwise justify the cost of a solar installation because they don't consume enough energy. So Uh they go, well, this doesn't pencil out. Yeah, that's a problem. I find that I'm using so little solar energy that I would have a hard time right now getting a contractor to put it on. Isn't that amazing? Right. That sounds like a wonderful idea, and I actually did not know that anybody was doing that, but that would definitely make it affordable for some people who are very reluctant to spend on on solar energy. How often do you clamber up there on the roof to uh, install these things? Not as often as I'd like to. I've probably helped install about 30 kilowatt hours of panels. That's not bad. I actually worked with them to do my installation on my home. So I think I've done like four installations, and I I keep wanting to do more, but the vegetable garden sort of calls me. (laughs) Well, that's a form of solar energy in in itself is the garden. So you're attacking the uh, solar issue on several fronts, I would say. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. It's been fun, and uh, keep generating that solar power. All righty. Take care. It's nice talking to you. Thank you so much. That was Bob Shilgen, a.k.a. Mr. Green, with some advice for sustainable living. If you've got a question for Mr. Green, all you got to do is go online, sierramagazine.org, click on Mr. Green, it's right there at the top of the page, send Bob your question, and if you're lucky, we'll have you on the show to answer it. One of my mottos is, follow your endorphins. And my endorphins are alive and well in the wilderness, trust me. <laughs> That's wild woman Meredith Taylor. But she wasn't always so wild. She started out her career in a Boston lab, studying mice. Then a research trip took her out west to Dubois, Wyoming. And that's when the adventure began. She met her husband, and she started a company leading tours through Yellowstone National Park that introduced people from all over the world to the natural beauty of the American West, both what remains and what's going away. Here's her story. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I was able to see an intact ecosystem. 
and wilderness feeds my curiosity. I met my now husband, Tori. Tori and I got married. Well, we did a, a summer in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, just the two of us traveling around, and we just studied a lot of different things. By then, we were outfitting, and there were sheep hunts, bighorn sheep, and I would explain to them the natural history of what we were seeing, and they said, well, this hunt is great, but my family would just love to come on this trip. So can I bring my wife and my kids next year? So the outfitting took on a life of its own, too. We just essentially evolved the, the business into natural history trips and, and then conservation trips. We were very happy with doing what we love to do and seeing the wilderness through more scientific eyes, I guess you'd say. What we love the most is the fact that it is wild, and that's what people loved to do was to appreciate the wild. So you had clean air, clean water. A number of the research trips that we took out, we took hydrologists and biologists out to study what they were working on and found that the air quality and water quality were indeed changing. And we're talking about off of Gannett Peak, the highest point in Wyoming. We were seeing more and more warmer years, and we could see the recession of the glaciers. We became concerned for it. We could understand that these changes were expedited by humans. Some years have gone back to what seemed like normal, but there's been a steady progression of that glacial recession in the Wind River Range, which is what we know now is the largest glacial complex in the lower 48 states. As we learn more and more about that from the researchers that we were outfitting, we said, this is really serious, and we need to l learn more about it ourselves. And we can see that climate change and the pollution and water problems and air problems, the problems that that wildlife are encountering are just a symptom of bigger problems for us. All of those are first seen with the wildlife because they, they're indicator species for us. And if they can't exist, the writing's on the wall. We can't either. That was wildlife biologist and conservationist Meredith Taylor. Ray Smith is a 59-year-old father and U.S. Air Force veteran who works at the Bureau of Land Management. He lives for adventure in the outdoors. He enjoys hiking, snowboarding. He works as a skier with the National Brotherhood of Skiers, an organization of African-American ski clubs. He's also a wilderness leader with Outdoor Afro. And this July, he and a team of 11 African-American hikers climbed and summited Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. Ray, welcome to The Overstory. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. And tell us just a little bit more for folks who aren't familiar. Uh, the name in some ways, I guess, is obvious, but what is Outdoor Afro and, and what are the kind of the goals and what is, how does it all work? Outdoor Afro started in Oakland, California about six years ago by Roommap, and it is a 501c3 organization whose mission is to lead and curate opportunities for folks of color to be in the outdoors 
and to have experiences in the outdoors and connect communities to our outdoors and our public spaces. Was this the first all-African-American expedition to Mount Kilimanjaro? From what I understand, this was the first all-African-American expedition. I'm talking about from the guides, the porters, our American guide, all of our support. That's how we planned it. It was important for us to show that we are doing things in the outdoors and in an adventurous mode, and it will be successful, it will be joyous, um, and we can bring back that experiences to our communities. What we're talking about is visual representation, and visual representation is an extension and a beginning of our outdoor story. We have a lot of stories from the past, and we now have new stories in how we connect to the outdoors. We connect to the outdoors for health, healing, recreation, environmental stewardship, and adventure, and we also connect to the outdoors to remember who we are and who we have been on this planet. And so when you talk about uh, visual representation, is this an an effort to to counteract, or I guess you could say be an antidote to some of the stereotypes that are out there, the stereotypes that say it's kind of going to be like a white guy out in the woods, and and that's who's out there on the Appalachian Trail? Folks need to understand that African Americans have always been in the outdoors. Um, the Buffalo Soldiers were the first park rangers. Matthew Henson was an explorer, you know, the South Pole. So we've always been out, but you don't see it in mainstream media. You don't see it in magazines. But because of an organization like Outdoor Afro, we are bridging the gap. So let's talk about the people. Tell me about some of the other folks on the trip. Did you know any of the other 10 people? We've done, you know, a couple of trips together. We kept in touch with each other with regards to training daily, over a year. And how'd you get ready, Ray? What did you, what did that kind of training look like for you? Training looked like for me, just turning up my training efforts from anything else that I ever that I ever did in terms of training. I've been a triathlete. I've, you know, I trained to get ready for snowboarding. I trained to get ready for, you know, riding bike centuries. But training for climbing Kilimanjaro is a whole different animal. For example, I went out to Colorado to get used to being at 10,000 feet and knowing what that feels like. And, you know, a lot of gym work and a lot of hikes, getting used to hiking every day, okay, a couple of days in a row. So sometimes was I would get off from work and go right to Harpers Ferry and hike till it got dark, turn around and come home and go back up there again the next day and hike and then go back up there the next day and hike. So I've hiked Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So you get to Tanzania. And Ray, was this the first time you'd ever been to Africa? Yes, that was the first time I've ever been to Africa, and it was a surreal time just to touch the soil. Just being on the continent, I felt an ancestral connection, the likes I'd never felt before, but also to know that we were, we were part of a team, that we were there for a mission, okay, to, to enhance the visual representation, to show our connection to the land, and also bring back some perspectives and experiences to our networks uh, about this particular trip. But just to be on the African content was just kind of like blew me away. And how were you guys received? How was your particular expedition received when you get there to Arusha, which I understand is sort of like the, the gateway community or sort of like the base camp community of Mount Kilimanjaro? What was the reception from the, uh, from the local Tanzanian porters and guides that you were working with? The welcome was incredible. When we walked around town, we got, like, the greatest uh, help. I'll tell you one crazy story is that they had these little buses where everybody crowds on the bus and they, you know, they drive around town. Well, one bus driver just stopped his route and he 
he gave us the bus and he just drove us around the town wherever we wanted to go. And we just he did not want to take any money or anything. Of course, we, we, we pulled together everything we could for him, but they gave us a whole restaurant. They would just do all kinds of things to take care of us. So how many days did it take to get from the base up to the summit? Our climb was six days. It was six days up and two days down. Eight days on the mountain. And so tell me just a little bit about the landscape. I mean, it's pretty impressive, right? You go through African savanna to rainforest to then alpine landscape. I can remember like the first two days, it was it was lush green. And then in a matter of a day, maybe a day and a half, it turned into an alpine desert. And then it turned into something <laughs> worse than an eye-pound desert, say nothing but rocks. Just straight alpine. I've I've climbed a couple of 14ers in Colorado and things like that. I've been snowboarding out west and had to climb and whatnot, but I've never seen land and terrain like such on Mount Kilimanjaro. And my understanding is the past, the, the last couple days, you're just like in the clouds or you're above the clouds. That was a surreal time when you could see yourself walking towards and up towards the clouds. Then you're in like this fog. And then by the end of the day, you, the clouds are under you. That's wild, man. Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was something to feel and see. Cool. I love it. So this does sound like this was successful. It sounds like it was joyous. But I'm wondering, was there anything that was really hard? Uh, any big obstacles that in the moment felt really tough? Well, just the sheer fact of physically dealing with the altitude and also the physicality of hiking every day. But again, just having the support of our team, our our porters, our guides, that made all the difference. Now, all of us, we were on this mountain and we were just supporting each other in, in any special way that we felt each other needed to have support. Okay, but it was a collective support also. We knew that we could we could only be successful by staying together, being together. The biggest thing is that we all feel that we are better leaders because of our experience. Better leaders, you mean when you come back and do, say, an outdoor Afro outing in, in Rock Creek Park or something? It can just be in Rock Creek Park or it can be someplace remote, say, you know, in a remote area of the Shenandoah Park. We just have a perspective about being a leader and leading people in the outdoors that can only come from being on an expedition of this nature. We don't take this leadership for granted at all because we know that it is the, it is what can make or break someone's experience in the outdoors, whether or not they're going to come on another experience or they're going to tell somebody about another experience or are they just going to start just experiencing things on their own. This is Ray Smith we've been talking to. He was part of a expedition of all African-American climbers who recently summited Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. You can read more about his story at sierramagazine.org. You can find photos there and a slideshow of the all-African-American expedition that summited Mount Kilimanjaro. Ray, thanks so much for talking to us today on The Overstory. Jason, I really appreciate it. We're going to end this episode again with a nature soundscape from Bernie Krause. This one was recorded at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro. As you listen, see if you can picture Ray Smith there at the base of the mountain, looking up into the clouds and knowing that if all goes well, he'll be above them in a few days' time. And for you birders out there, what you're hearing is the masked weaver bird. Now sit back, if you can, close your eyes, and take this minute to just listen.
The Overstory is produced by Josephine Holtzman and Isaac Kestenbaum of Future Projects Media, with help from Daniel Roth and mixed by Ben Shano. Theme music is by Jeff Bradsky. Allison Cagle is our editorial fellow. Next time on The Overstory, an epic thousand-mile paddle down the Mississippi River and a conversation with bioacoustician Bernie Krause. I'm Jason Mark, and you've been listening to The Overstory. Overstory.